I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Today I'm in the Palace of Westminster with Baroness Tanny Gray Thompson. Great pleasure to see you, Tanny. You're a Cardiff lass, of course, aren't you? Yes. Whereabouts in Cardiff were you brought up? Uh, in Heath. My, my grandparents had lived in the house that I grew up in, and then when my dad got married to mum, um, his parents moved out and dad stayed in the house. So he'd lived in the house from, I think, the age of like 14, 15, um, until he died in his mid-70s. So, yeah, stayed in one place. And I think, you know, dad's view when I was born was actually Heath was really accessible. You know, it was very level. All the shops were accessible before we even kind of worried about those sorts of things. And it was close to the hospital where I didn't spend a lot of time, but I had appointments there. It was easy to get to central Cardiff, and it was just, actually it turned out it was a really good place to train when I became an athlete, so um, it, it kind of all worked out really well for me. You went to school in Penarth, how did that come about? So I'd gone to Birchgrove Primary, and then I'd, I could walk a little bit when I was young, and then just gradually as I grew, my legs grew weaker, and I just slowly became paralysed. So what I'm missing, I'm missing um, a bunch of vertebrae at the back of my spinal cord, so my spinal cord sort of spills out and is a bit of a mess. And as I grew, my spine collapsed. So it was actually my own vertebra that severed my spinal cord and paralysed me. And there was nothing they could do at the time. But um, I ended up being in a chair. And then when I came to 11, I thought I was going to go to the same school my sister was at, which was clinician. And then the head teacher was like, well, we don't take people like you. And then my dad used Baroness Warnock, Mary Warnock's report on education for kids with special educational needs to fight to get me into mainstream school. And at the time... St. Cyrus and Penarth was the only school in South Glamorgan that took disabled children. And so I I got sent there. So local authority paid for a taxi for me every day to be traipsed over to Penarth to go to mainstream school. How old were you, Tammy, when you became aware that there was a physical problem? I mean, I think I always knew in that, you know, when I was trying to walk around and do things, I knew I couldn't do it the same as everybody else. And for me, that was quite frustrating, you know, that I sort of was an active child and just couldn't keep up with everyone else and would fall over really easily and and couldn't run and couldn't play the same way as everyone else did so I think you know some of it was a bit frustrating I had calipers and a rollator like a walking frame for a while which was okay but actually you know mum and dad fought really hard to get me a chair because my parents were able to step back from it because I think people were telling them the only way I'd have a normal life is if I was walking and my parents were much more keen on me being independent. And so the chair gave me independence. So I could play with my friends and do things that I wanted to do. So I think I always knew it was there. But mum and dad protected me from a lot of the stuff around. You know, so they were constantly told about I'd never do anything because I was disabled. You know, I was aware. I remember being in supermarkets and parents pulling their kids out of my way and saying, don't go near her, you might catch it. Uh, and things like that. And I think Mum and Dad, in a different way, both had quite a dark sense of humour, so they taught me to see some of the humour in that. And I remember getting thrown out of the cinema, sort of uh, near Rabina, and because cause I was disabled, I'd gone with my friends, and I was told that I was a fire risk. And Mum had waited outside to check that we were OK getting in, so I came storming back in and basically said, you know, you will not chuck my child out because she's a wheelchair user. Um, and Mum then taught me to say, you know, when I was... You know, I've been repeatedly told over the years I'm a fire risk. The response mum taught me was, you know, well, I've never spontaneously combusted before. And so, you know, you've got this precocious, probably slightly gobby little sort of 
10-year-old going, well, I've never spontaneously combusted. Mm. So, you know, mum and dad encouraged that. Um, I think the feistiness was there. It's in our family, but they kind of encouraged that because they knew it would, would, would help me. So when you were a young girl, did you have conventional aspirations in terms of career? I think so. I mean, I, I loved sports. I loved doing sports. Um, and I kind of wanted to be a whole bunch of... Well, I wanted to play rugby for Wales at one point. That that wasn't really going to happen for lots of reasons. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I sort of grew up thinking that... I, I didn't see barriers around me because where we lived was accessible. And um, so I didn't really see lots and lots of barriers. So I think it was only probably when I was probably into my teens that I started to see things in a, a different way. But but mum and dad always encouraged me to to think about whatever it was I wanted to do. And actually, they, they were also, you know, I remember mum saying to me, if people treat you differently because you're in a wheelchair, it's their problem, not yours. You know, they're the ones who are idiots. And so that, that was kind of there in my head. Because that must have been very important because a lot of people will look at your story and see somebody who obviously started life with an enormous disadvantage in conventional terms Mm. and yet was over to overcome that and become probably the best known disabled athlete in the world. I mean that is really quite an amazing trajectory isn't it Tony? I suppose it's what you you think of as disadvantage so I, I would say I didn't have any disadvantage in that my my parents were well educated and my dad had a, a reasonably good job so you know we weren't you know we had food to eat on the table and you know we weren't worried about paying bills and things like that you know we we absolutely weren't spoiled we were actually brought up quite strictly as as children but i think growing up in an environment where you know you're loved that that's actually quite a rich environment to grow up in and mum and dad encouraged me to and my sister to you know try things and it didn't matter if it didn't work out and if it, you know you failed we'll give it another go so knowing that they were there as a parachute was was actually an exceptionally privileged upbringing and and so that sort of differentiation between how people saw me and how I saw myself and how mum and dad encouraged me to see myself I think was really important because I it, it's that perception of of disadvantage so I, I think I've been extraordinarily lucky and I just can't walk and and you know it'd be nice to be able to get them downstairs a bit easier and I'm to get out of my bottom and crawl. But, you know, that that's the, it's, it's the barriers that are created around, not, not the barriers that I had as a child, if that makes sense. Did you get any bullying of any kind from other children of your age? Not in primary school, not at all. There was a teeny bit in high school, but not, not, not a huge amount. Probably more so from other disabled children that were in the school than any of the non-disabled children. And, and I think, you know, you look back on that, and that was probably around... People trying to fit in, trying to find a way, trying to assert some sort of control and power over their lives. There, there was a little bit, I think, when I was in like form four, form five, but it wasn't anything that I, I think probably slightly hurtful at the time, but didn't have a big impact on me, you know, m- much beyond that. So, how old were you when your interest in sport developed? Uh, from being that of somebody who liked it as a recreation into something really serious, which you were going to take immensely seriously and end up with doing what we all know that you did? Probably about the age of 12. So I, I was playing sport from being six, seven, swimming, went horse riding. You know, that there's, there's nothing disadvantaged in the family that can do that, you know. So it, it gave me lots of breadth in terms of seeing the things that I could do. And I started doing a bit of wheelchair racing when I was 11. 
and then really by the age of 12, 13, that, that was, I knew that was the sport. And so I loved it. I mean, I just loved doing sports. So tennis, archery, swimming, dreadful swimmer, pretty much, you know, highlight of my career as I failed to drown just, but, but I just loved being active. I loved pushing myself and seeing, even if I wasn't the best, uh, I like seeing myself improve and, and getting better. And that's something I think dad taught me very much was that you need to look at your own improvement. Yeah, sport is about comparing you to everyone else, but you have to have your own sense of self-worth and self-value and understand yourself when you're getting better. Because, you know, just being seventh or eighth or ninth or whatever in a race all the time, that, that's only one part of the story. It's, it's like a big Venn diagram. There's lots of other bits of it that fit together. How rigorous did your training regime become? Uh, it sort of just gradually increased over time. So, you know, I guess I went to Loughborough University. There was a big pickup in my training when I went to Loughborough. Um, and I competed in Seoul in 88 at the end of my first year. Um, and that was the point. It was like, okay, right, what I've done before is okay. And it's fine. And it got me to a certain level. But actually, if I'm going to really improve, I need to, to, to really step it up. So, um, yeah, I think between Seoul and Barcelona, it, it was a, several gears that I stepped it up to, to be training quite a lot of times a week. Because Loughborough is renowned, isn't it, for its sport, essentially. So were you studying sport? No, um, yeah. I, I did a politics degree and very grandly said to my head of department before I graduated that I wasn't going to do go into politics because that was for losers. Huh. And you go, oh, right, OK. Yeah. What was it that inspired your interest in politics then? Well, actually, I wanted to study history, which, I mean, it's similar. And then after sitting my A-levels and waiting for my results, I think, I got um, a letter saying that they were going to close the history department down. They'd had a big rig, big rejig in, in what they were doing. And they came back and said, look, you know, your options are you can either go back to your other universities and ask them to reopen your offers, or we'll look at putting you on another course at Loughborough. And so I, I was interested in politics. Um, was it a political family? Do you know what? I hardly ever knew how my parents voted. I knew they voted, and we talked a lot about voting, and we talked a lot about politics. We didn't talk about party politics very much. It, it was always there, and, and actually politics is about affecting change, about doing things differently. That's, you know, a lot of the conversations, I guess, as I got into my late teens, early 20s, was, you know, Dad telling me how privileged I was, and I needed to make sure other people had opportunities. You know, one thing Dad always used to say, which is so true, is that education gives you choices. And that was always there. You know, for me, it's, uh, the party politics is still, have less interest in, but the process of politics and how you can do things to make life better for people fascinates me and how you can give people an equal chance and things like that. So, yeah, it, it's. It, I, I guess it was always there, just in a slightly different way. So studying politics at university, what extra dimension do you think that brought to your perspective? I think in lots of ways. I mean, Loughborough was quite a tough place to be as a as a young athlete. You know, I was very quiet, very shy. I can stand up and talk in front of a thousand people, and it doesn't bother me. Actually, going into a room and doing a evening reception where I don't think I know anyone just fills me with dread. So, it's kind of really interesting. You know, people maybe hear me now, and and I'm a long way from where I was at eighteen. So, you know, I was the only disabled athlete at Loughborough at the time. You know, their their idea of inclusion wasn't what I'd experienced growing up through Bridgend Athletics Club and the coaching there. A lot of the buildings weren't terribly accessible, although my accommodation was. So um, I think what I learned there was it actually just taught me to deal with all the people that you meet in sport. Um, 
and it taught me that you've got to be creative and you've got to find different ways to train. So I trained with the athletics club for my first year and then it actually just wasn't, it wasn't right for me. So I went and joined the mountaineering club and trained with them. So it just taught me different, that there's, there's solutions. You just need to be open-minded and you need to find different ways to do things. And it'll be hard and challenging and you kind of, you know, will feel that you have all these barriers, but you've got to keep sort of stepping back to find a way, a bit like going through a maze. So the the politics course taught me that, you know, and I was studying politics at an amazing time. So I was doing German politics the year the wall came down. I was studying South African politics when Mandela walked free. You know, there was like so much stuff going on. And it was great for me not studying sport that you, you had two different bits in my life that, that kind of fitted together. But but Loughborough, you know, made me resilient. It made me come out on myself. It made me deal with all those interesting people and, and challenging people that maybe aren't there to help young athletes. And, and it toughened me up for different ways. Loughborough created the person or helped create the person that I am now. Because you're not the sort of person who'll take any nonsense, are you? I was uh, rereading the story about the difficulties that you have in terms of public transport. And you've been very vocal about the way in which um, disabled people find it difficult to get around. And, I mean, you actually produced your own version of the London Underground map, didn't you, which had Tony's <laughs> map, where yes. you would actually see from that which of the stations were accessible to disabled people, because London, um, it's not very good, is it? Because uh, there are lots of the stations still. I think it is getting a bit better, but there are still lots of stations which just are completely no-go areas for disabled people. Yeah, so, so what I did, I was sitting on the Board of Transport for London at the time, and it's expensive to make some of these stations accessible. You're talking about tens of millions of pounds, and they've got to join up with other stations. So, you know, the, the tube network was built at a time when it just wasn't designed, well, it wasn't designed for women, let alone, you know, anyone else. So, uh, or the number of people. So, and I've been in all these meetings. We were talking about funding and a different way of looking at how we could bring accessibility, not have it as a separate budget, but but actually it's just part of the rebuild and redevelopment of stations and just be a bit more creative. And so we were talking, uh, I was talking to a couple of board members and we were talking about different tube stations and I was like, no, I can't use that one. Oh, can't you now? Well, I can't use that one. So I just went to the local tube station, got a bunch of the printed maps and got a Sharpie pen and just crossed out every station I couldn't use and then crossed out TFL and put Tanny on the top and then just left that on a couple of people's um, places for our next meeting. And it was just quite interesting when people opened and went, oh, right, okay. I think that's the creativity. There's there's different ways that you can show people about how change is needed. And I think I absolutely get treated better than, than the vast majority of disabled people. I am absolutely convinced at airports my name is on a list and, and probably several train stations. And I did have one chief exec of a train company try to give me his, his private mobile number and said to me, look, you know, whatever train you want to go on, give me a call, I'll sort it. You know, don't worry, nobody will leave you ever again. I went, brilliant. And I hadn't actually, he was handing that, holding his card out to me. And I sort of took my, put my hand out. And you could see sort of slight relief on his face. And I said, you do realise if I take this off you, I'm going to tweet your phone number. And I will give it to every disabled person I know. And he was like, oh, so I, I, I made sure, you know, because you could see him going. And I said, you know, it's not about me because I'm all right, you know, I, I, I can be robust. But, but there's a lot of disabled people who don't feel able to complain, who don't want to travel by public transport. And actually, it's a brilliant system. You know, it can work. And it's not about fixing it, but for me, it's about fixing it for others. So what I said to some other guys recently, 
I just want the same miserable experience of commuting as everyone else. Really simple. And we're not there yet. So, you know, there's there's still more to do. And so, you know, I think it's recognising that I, I've got a voice and a platform to, to be able to do things up a bit and be a bit, bit feisty. It's a, quite a few years now since the Disability Discrimination Act came in, isn't it? Um, what had to be done to get to a point where Parliament was prepared to pass such legislation? Oh, well, I mean, it's a really tough fight, you know, for an awful lot of dif- disability rights campaigners. And, you know, you look at Alf Morris, who was just incredible. And, you know, my first week I came into the House Lords, I passed him in the corridor and he stopped me. He said, oh, hi, Tanya, I'm Alf Morris. And like, uh, yeah, I know. You know, there were incredible people like that. And also, ultimately, the DDA ended up having to be a compromise because of what would get through in legislation at the time. And it was okay, you know, it was it was better than anything that we'd had before. Was it as strong as most people wanted? No. But it was about getting something onto the statute books and, you know, the Equality Act, which has superseded it, it's 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 brought some strengths and some, some challenges. I'd I'd still like it to be a lot stronger because you get to the point where you hope that you can take people with you because they see the the injustice that a lot of disabled people face or they think they want to make things better. But sometimes you just have to say, look, you know, we need legislation. So, you know, I would absolutely toughen up the legislation on blue badge abuse and people who park in blue badge spaces without them. There's other things that, that I would do in terms of making access to goods and services better. You know, public transport, we need a bit of a bit more of a shift to, to give disabled people, you know, a more equal chance. But But, you know, at the time it was... It, it was exciting. I remember doing lots of interviews when it was introduced because it was like, OK, this, this is our chance to build on something else. How does the situation in Britain compare with other European countries, for example? I mean, access compared to lots of Europe is, is, is better in the UK. You know, there are many countries, you know, there's challenges in terms of physical access, public transport. You know, actually Barcelona's tube stations now in central... All step free, all wheelchair accessible. I mean, that's pretty cool. That's that's exciting. Attitude to disability varies quite a lot in different countries, based on their their own history. So the the challenges are just sort of complicated in in terms of how disabled people are viewed and perceived in in those different countries. If you compare it to the USA, their American with Disabilities Act is is stronger than what we have. So, you know, they have accessible toilets everywhere, drop curbs. People don't abuse blue badge parking spaces. And if I'm being honest, you know, a lot of that legislation came through the, the veterans. You know, they, they have a huge organisation, Paralysed Veterans of America, number of different big campaigning bodies. Because America have been in a lot of wars, they have a lot of war injured. And those bodies fought really hard for, for that change. And, and a lot of those groups brought in the ADA, which we didn't have the... The, the similar size and scale of bodies uh, and organisations, uh, although the loads of incredible ones, but, but didn't have the weight of numbers that they did in the States. After your athletic career was over, you obviously got uh, a succession of honours, didn't you? You got a, you know, yeah. medals and all that sort of stuff, and gongs. Mm. But unlike most people who have made their way in sport... You actually became a parliamentarian yourself mm. in 2010. How actually did that come about? So while I was competing, I was very interested in athlete rights and lots of like the politics of sport. And then I guess I was really careful because I think it's hard when you're a competing athlete to have a view 
on politics with a small p. If you ask any number of you know, people who work in sport, they'd have said I was a complete pain in the neck as an athlete because I kind of felt that, you know, a lot of athletes weren't treated very well. And, you know, for a lot of my career, Paralympians weren't treated the same as Olympians. And, you know, you're kind of fighting for, you know, coverage and sponsorship and, and to be treated as, as as an athlete. And so, you know, I, I kind of, by the time I got to my fifth Games, I kind of knew that was it, that I was pretty much done. And... I wasn't ready to stop after Athens, so thought I'd just keep going for another year or so just to figure out. You're a long time retired. David Moorcroft said that to me when I was in my mid-twenties, and, and that was always at the back of my mind. So I started thinking about transition, actually in my early twenties as well, because you you don't know when you're not going to get selected, or there's lots of things that you have no control over as an athlete. Politics was one of the things that I was sort of toying with, and I then I, I sat on lots of different bodies and organisations, did some non-exec work, and then had an opportunity to, to come here, and it was suggested to me by one of the government departments that, that I should think about coming here. And I was lucky enough to be called for interview. And the interview process is really tough. So, you know, one of the first questions I was asked was, um, what's the most interesting debate you've listened to in the House of Lords? Well, uh, and, and I remember just kind of stopping, going, oh, God, this is awful, like, you know, Right, this is not going to happen for me. I guess, it wasn't uh, your uh, your top listening at the time. I, I listened, but I think it was the interesting bit that threw me. <laughs> because, I mean, actually, I mean, we, if you listen to a lot of debates, there are a lot of very, very interesting debates, but they're quite technical, a lot of them. And some of them are just quite hard going, to be honest. What I learned from my time doing my degree, you know, our job's not to run the country. Our job is just to say to the government of the day, are you sure? Do you want to have another think about it? You know, we don't use a lot of powers that we, we could. Yeah, I, I think yeah, it was the interesting bit that was like, wow. Um, anyway, I managed to get through that. And like, I didn't hear anything at all. And then several months later, I got an email saying, um, you know, you're in. I was like, wow. And I remember ringing Dad. My mum passed away by then. And, and Dad's response was, before you get too excited, make sure they've got the right Tanny Gray Thompson. Right, okay, Dad, thanks. I have an unusual name. Karis, my daughter, told her teacher I had a job collecting tickets at Westminster Tube Station. Not sure how she got that. I mean, she was five, to be fair. You know, she's a little baby. My husband's response, Ian, was, uh, well, you know, it's all just stupid. You, you know, you know, nominated chambers, complete waste of time. Don't know what you're doing that for. So, or something like that. So, but my family, hugely supportive. But uh, it was a big, 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 cha- big decision to say yes to it because it meant quite a change in our family life. We live in the northeast of England now. I'm in London four days a week. You're making a really conscious decision to be away from your family because it wasn't right for us to move to London as a family. My family made a big sacrifice for my political career. And it's like my sporting career. It was what I wanted to do. My family kind of put up with it. And then when they thought all that was done, they then had to make another big choice to to, to enable me to do what I do now. How have you fitted in? Uh, ooh... My first year I was here, I was called the young girl in the wheelchair by several colleagues because I was 40 and I was the youngest peer for a bit when I came here. All right, I think. I mean, when I came here, you know, you, you see the stuff that's published in the papers. So, you know, the only, only pictures they generally put of us are in state opening with our ermine robes that if you want to buy them, they're 18,000 and you rent them for 110 quid a time every state opening you choose to go to. So, you know, we don't wear those all the time. We... You know, you see the average age is 69. It's easy to think there's a lack of diversity. There's lots... There needs to be more diversity when you start looking at people's educational background, their work background, where they've come from, what they've done. 
there's some economic diversity, but not but the wrong way. You know, we, we've got people who are billionaires here, so I'm I'm probably one of the poorest people here, uh, and and you know we're okay as a family. So you know, there's stuff like that that still needs to to be different. And, and people are very kind, actually, and very warm, and they want to beat you when you're good, and they want to help you. And the biggest thing here, which is incredible, is people listen to what you say. They may just disagree with you, they may vote against you, they may actually think you're an idiot, but they respect you to listen to you when you speak. And that is a really powerful thing to have. Because a lot of the time, you know, in other walks of life, in sport, as a young athlete, you're shouted over, you're told you can't have an opinion, and, and here people will, will listen. And it's weird, and there's rules for everything, rules for what colour carpets you can stand on at certain times of day, and it doesn't become afternoon in the Lords till the Mace is in the chamber, and that's a different time every day, you know. Monday, Tuesday's 2.30, Wednesday's 3, Thursday's 11, Friday's 10. So my first three days here, when at one o'clock in the afternoon, people were saying to me, good morning. And I was thinking, they're all mad. They're all female. And then somebody said to me, no, you do... And so there's the written rules, which coming from a sport background are kind of easy because we have you know you learn the rules and you get the rule book and you go right what what can I do what can't I do what am I going to get told off for but that's the unwritten rules that take a bit longer to learn and I love it and it's amazing and it's frustrating and it's tiring and I sometimes feel like I'm smashing my head into a brick wall and then you have a moment where you change something and you go oh right okay and that kind of gives you the energy again to to keep going but but I'd say generally people here are, are decent people what are your proudest moments in the House of Lords in terms of being able to make a contribution? Welfare reform is the biggest piece of legislation I worked on and, you know, I, I lost all my votes in that because, you know, the government had a three-line whip against me, coalition government. That's pretty tough. You know, I remember losing one vote quite late at night by one vote. So what did you want to achieve? There was a whole list of changes to the personal independence payment system and universal credit, benefits for disabled children, for working disabled people, working parents who are disabled really really tough to get any of that through I think I worked incredibly hard on it had good speeches had a number of government people who either voted with me or abstained but not enough to carry it through and that's that's frustration hard but one thing you know when you're here is you have other chances to do it and I think what I learned from that there's other ways to 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 bring about change and so you know actually being here is a plot so you know Brexit we're not doing much legislation at the moment so that's given me the chance to do trains and public transport and other things and use the platform I have here in a different way so actually it's not all about what you do in the chamber it's what you do in different ways so you know if I want to so I tweet a lot about trains but if if you want to have a meeting with a chief exec of a train operating company and you invite them for afternoon tea they rarely say no and and that's a bit of like the power of this place of the title of Actually, afternoon tea here is quite cool. And you don't need to have a you know face-to-face slanging match with people. I might do a bit of that on Twitter, but actually you can have really reasonable, sensible, grown-up discussions. And that's the other thing in this place that teaches you to be kind of grown-up about stuff, that you don't have to scream at people. You can affect change in a really collaborative way. And probably that's the biggest change. But, you know, bizarrely, the biggest change I've had is probably around public transport. Because I guess while there have been advances in terms of accessibility and people's general understanding. Recently, with welfare reform, disabled people have come under the cosh, haven't they? Because mm. 
there are all these stories which crop up from time to time, both involving people who are disabled and also people who are uh, chronically <coughs> sick, yep. about how they're told, oh, well, actually, you, you know, there's no reason why you can't be working, so you shouldn't yep. have this benefit. Does that really get under your skin? Yes, because, you know, I don't want people claiming benefits who shouldn't be. I, you know, people should be in work as far as they possibly can. But there are challenges for a number of people in society. And we, we've moved back in, in the last couple of governments. We moved back to a place where we're almost talking about the deserving and the undeserving poor, which I thought we'd got away from. And there's this image, you know, if your Paralympian is warm and cuddly and it's all lovely... And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's these nasty people pretending to be disabled who are just trying to screw loads of money out of the country. And that's not, you know, there's the teeniest element of truth in that. It's just not, that's not real. And and there are lots of barriers for disabled people in terms of getting into work, in terms of attitude towards them, physical access, transport. I, I was chatting to someone I know recently. He's a quadruple amputee and he's he's got a job and he works. But he went for an assessment and, you know, some of the things he was told were just, frankly, rubbish. Somebody who's a double-leg amputee was asked, did they think their legs were going to grow back? Yeah, I mean, it's like, sorry? <laughs> you know, I mean, some really bizarre thing. I think his response was, I'm not an anaconda. Um, but then you can't have a sense of humour in these situations. You know, I, I use humour a lot to kind of get myself through stuff, but but in these situations, you can't have a sense of humour. So I, I think it's gone too far. I think the wrong people have been cut and supported. And, and ultimately, the Welfare Reform Bill, which whatever anyone says was about saving money it hasn't saved any money at all it's actually cost more money and and so that's my frustration is that uh, if you want to bring the welfare bill down there's different things you can do the assessments process is just appalling you know one of the things that i've heard anecdotally that, that that's happening to disabled people so it's whether you can walk 40 meters 50 meters you're taken to an office and they're told there's been a double booking and then you walk to a different office in the building which is 100 meters away so they tick the box to say you can walk under me. Now, now, the point you are going to try incredibly hard to walk that is when you're there for your benefit assessment. And it's, it's a really odd distance, you know, 40 metres is just a really odd distance. Like, where does 40 metres get anybody? And there's different ways people achieve that. So I had an amendment which got nowhere, which would, I mean, it wasn't going to, which was, actually, let's twist this on its head. Let's see if we give money to people, what can they do with it? Because the whole system is based on proving what you can't do, which is really negative. So, you know, I, I think there is ways to save money. I think there's ways to support people. You know, it's true, you know, how we value ourselves as a society is about how we treat the most vulnerable. And we don't treat them very well. And we've got money and we've got support and we could just do things better. You know, you just walk around London and you just see the number of people sleeping out at the moment. And, and the scary thing for me now between Westminster and where I stay, which is about 25, 30 minutes walk, I can see eight to ten young women sleeping out. You know, and that's shocking to me. That's really shocking. And you know what? That's that's that means we're not in a good place. Now, obviously, you're making a serious contribution here. That's within the system as it exists. There are many people who would say that the House of Lords is a complete anachronism. It's <laughs> yeah. unelected. Yep. Uh, you're here not because anyone has put a cross against your name on a ballot paper, but mm. because you were seen by um, an yep. elite few mm. you would be able to make a contribution mm. indeed, and indeed you have but is this really the right way to run a country do you know i've changed my view since i came here and because i think i spent a long time thinking about having 
probably in my teens, early 20s, you know, directly elected, really important. There's absolutely change that we need in this place. Our numbers are too big. I think everyone who comes here should go through the same interview route that me as a crossbencher went through. I think you should have to prove what your contribution will be. The positive thing is about my interview process is they don't just look at where you are now and it's slightly odd job interview. They look at how they think you can contribute and they really challenge you to... And it was made really clear to me, that you know, and to a lot of us, that this is a job. This is not you just drift in and out. This is not an honorific title, which doesn't get you anything anyway. Not that I've tried. This this is what you're meant to do. And you're meant to do stuff here. And, and you feel that level of expectation. A lot of people who came in around the same time as me feel that level of expectation. So, yeah, it absolutely needs reform. I, I think our numbers need to be reduced. And, and I think the way we're paid and the way we're offered support, you know, we, we don't have... We don't have any admin support. And, you know, I don't want a big office, but just somebody to help me with my emails from time to time would be quite good. But actually, I think there's a certain power in they can't get rid of us. They can't threaten you. They can't threaten you to vote a certain way or you lose your seat. So the most they can do here, if you're a member of a party, is they can be very disappointed in you. So actually, in the Lords, you can rebel. And, and people think about it really hard before they do, but you can express an opinion. So I'm kind of, I think, quite in favour of, of having a, a period that you serve, which is probably 15 years, 18, I don't know, something around that, and, and then you step aside. The challenge here is that uh, I was talking to someone, uh, some students who were saying, well, you need a cut-off limit, you know, 75 and you're out. And you're like, yeah, but look at this person. who's like 85 and this person, this person, this person. And, and so age is not necessarily barrier so I think maybe time limits the way to do it but you know again it's it's not our job to run the country if some of the suggestions are turning us into a senate would, are really interesting but the size of the constituency would be bigger than an MP's constituency so do you know what if more vote more people voted for me than an MP I'd kind of want to run the country and you then have that battle between the two chambers which is not a bad thing but we've seen it in France America either everything gets through or nothing gets through actually any government has to work pretty hard to get their stuff through us. So it's not perfect, absolutely not perfect. And there's there's lots of other countries that who have the same system as us, which is not exactly democracies. But but I think there's a little bit of be careful what you wish for if you chuck us out, because we're not trying to run the country. We're not trying to stamp our feet. Very, very occasionally, we do, you know, really, really stand up to the commons and just say, you know, tax credits... You know, that was quite funny. So, you know, George Osborne got very upset with us. And, you know, lots of people going, well, we're stepping over. No, we we, we just hadn't used that particular power for about 300 years. So I think we're conscious of, of what our power is. Anyway, yeah, um, it needs reform. But, yeah, not directly elected, I don't think. One of the strange things is that people have been talking about House of Lords reform for over 100 years. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, some years ago, there was a, re- a reduction in the number of um, hereditary peers yep. who were allowed here. And then you do have this sort of rather strange pantomime, don't you, having by-elections for hereditary peers where they vote for themselves to see whether they can be in the chamber. Do you, do you think that's a bit silly? Um, I think some of the, the by-election stuff is a bit odd because sometimes it's a vote of the whole house and sometimes it's a vote of the party and and we tend to replace, so say a Conservative peer dies and it's a vote of the whole house, we tend to vote for that. So, yeah, that's a bit odd, I have to say. However, the hereditaries I know who work here are pretty amazing. So I shared an office with, first couple of years I was here, with Lady Saltoon, Scottish peeress. Uh, in Scotland, the title can go through the female line as well as the male line, which is fascinating. Actually, what's quite interesting is that 
if the current holder of the title, man, uh, only has daughters, he can pick which daughter it goes to. It's not the oldest one, which is fascinating, where it's always the oldest boy. Anyway, that's a whole other discussion. But Flora was amazing. So, you know, her family tree went back to kind of 1066-ish. She was the 22nd in her family to sit here, was considered to be the closest relation to the Majesty of the Queen. But when Flora made the decision, she didn't think about a five-year parliament or she didn't think about whether people were going to vote for her. She thought about her, I guess, her, you know, she comes from an estate, you know, she, she thought about the people around her. She, she would think about things 30, 40, 50 years ahead because she knew what every single one of her family members had tried to do to each other, you know. So her perception of the world is not based on what's next year, or, but it could be. But So she just brings a really interesting view to it and there's lots of things we disagreed on so that the hereditaries I know who are here work really really hard and and contribute to that diversity which I think it's a good thing to not be thinking in terms of parliamentary timescales because unfortunately for, for the commons that's what they have to think in they're always having to think about the next election which I think it gives us quite a lot of freedom that that's what we don't have to think about that we, we can just think about things in a different way. Because very often problems which face a country are going to take much longer than one term to kill. Absolutely. You know, the other thing which I think is good about this place is that we've all done other things before we came here. I mean, we you do get a few people, and I guess we'll see more of it, who've only been in politics, you know, straight from uni, maybe research your MP and then they come here. But still the vast majority of us have done different things. So you can have a debate whether an athlete was a real job or not. My dad always said it wasn't. But, you know, I sat on the National Disability Council, which oversaw the implementation of the Disability Discrimination Act. I sat on Sport Wales on UK Sport. I, I tempt, you know, I worked in athletics. Uh, I was a development officer in sport. I ran events. So it's not just, I think the assumption is like me being an athlete got me here. I don't know. If, I think it helped. It helped, definitely. But but it was all the other stuff I did as well, all part of that jigsaw. So, you know, when we talk about, have a debate on sport, it's not just what we thought 30 years ago. We're, you're still expected to be an expert in it. And being here, you do have time to do other stuff. When I'm talking about transport or something like that, my time on TFL or the other stuff, it's you bring all that weight of experience and knowledge. And, you know, when you come here, I'm people tell you, don't go and talk into a debate if you don't know anything about it, because there will be 50 people in the chamber who know more than you. So go and talk in the stuff that you know that you know what you're on. And it may sound stupid, it's really sensible. You know, I did the legal aid bill, and um, I think there were 73 of us on the second reading, and about five of us who weren't lawyers. And But my knowledge on disability rights and benefits, and that, that's what we were doing in it. And, and so you bring a different view to, to it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I love the place, so I'm going to say that, aren't I? But um, you, you can do so many different things in this place that affects change. Sometimes you can do more over a cup of tea than you can in the chamber, and that's an important lesson to learn. Just finally, it's been quite a few years since you lived in Wales. Mm. What does being Welsh mean to you, Terry? Oh. Um, it's given me so much, being Welsh. I, I said this from being a kid. If I'd grown up in England, I just don't think I would have had the opportunity to be an athlete. I wouldn't have had the support as a young athlete, the media coverage... You know, Wales is quite tight-knit, very loyal, very supportive. The chance to compete for Wales at Commonwealth Games. Some of the proudest moments in my life. Carrying the flag at the Commonwealth Games. I mean, I still... That was huge. Absolutely. And actually for my family, for my mum, that was probably one of her proudest moments. The medal's lovely. 
but carrying the flag was was just incredible. I went back to Wales, so my daughter was born in Wales because I knew she was going to have English residency. Um, sorry, this sounds completely crazy. You know, it was important for me to keep the rules. I've still got family in Wales, and I kind of joke that when I divorce my husband, I'm moving back. We, we we have a complicated life in terms of travelling where we live, both our jobs that we do, but I I would see myself going back. And being Welsh and everything that is, is it's given me so much of what I have now. So I will always, always be grateful. I will always think of myself as Welsh and British. And somebody said to me recently, yeah, but you're English now. It's like, oh, that is just not how it works. It really isn't. So um, I'm very proud of, of, of being Welsh. I wasn't allowed or wasn't able to have a Welsh title when I came here. So I did my oath of allegiance in Welsh. And the Welsh I grew up speaking, which I'm not fluent at all, but um, I didn't know there were words for oath, allegiance, any of that in Welsh. I never heard it. And I remember being absolutely terrified on the day. And you do the English oath first. And actually, it's one of the clerks who was here, who's Welsh speaker. And I said to him, I don't think I can do it in Welsh. I just don't think I'm good enough. And he just said, you're in the House of Lords. You're good enough to do this. And, I went, oh. and he said, um, the English people won't have a clue what you're saying. So you can mispronounce every single word. And they won't know. And the Welsh peers will be so proud you're doing it. They won't care. And that, that for me, is, is one of my proudest moments, actually doing the oath in Welsh. And I don't think I messed it up too much either. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, it, it means so many things. It's complicated. But I wouldn't have the life I have now if I hadn't been born in Wales. Tony Gray-Thompson, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.